off episode 373 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Big Noise from the Jungle. It is from the surf band Toro Jones. They're based out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, or you can just look them up on Bandcamp. Look up Toro Jones and look for their EP. There's six songs on this EP release. They're all good. I like this one quite a bit. They gave us the okay to play their music on the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. We just got done with a very successful, in my opinion, five-week stretch, a theme month. Last May was Lucha de Mayo, and it was amazing. Nothing but luchador monster movies. But there are so many other classic monster movies, horror movies, sci-fi, fantasy movies out there. It's time to get back to basics. It's time to get back to a classic sci-fi flick. But just like we did last month for Lucha de Mayo, this week we're going to go to another country as well. Except we're not going to Mexico. This time we're going to Japan because we're going to be talking about Toho's 1957 sci-fi classic, the Mysterians. I'm not talking about it by myself. As always, I'm going to have a guest, and we have another newcomer to the show, an author by the name of Byron Craft. He is a Lovecraftian author, a horror author, knows his classic monster movies, knows his classic sci-fi movies. He's a great guy. I had an opportunity to meet him in person at last year's Lovecraft Film Festival in CthulhuCon, although I've been aware of him for a while because, well, I've been reading his books. We're going to talk about that with Byron. We're going to talk about The Mysterians, and we're going to talk about a handful of other things as well. You know, I do try to pick the trailers that I play through every episode of Monster Kid Radio based on things that are said throughout the episode. If a movie comes up in conversation, I make a note of that, and then I go and try to find a trailer for that to drop into the show. This time around, Byron and I name-dropped so many classic monster films. I have a huge list, and I think... (laughs) Don't worry, I'm not going to play all those trailers, but every trailer you hear in this week's episode is referenced somewhere in the conversation with me and Byron. Also this week, we have another Weird Wednesday report from Jeff Pullier. Appreciate him calling from his sickbed to tell us about what movie he saw at last week's Weird Wednesday. He'll explain the sickbed thing. No feedback this week, and that's not because I don't have any, but Brenda's not here right now. She's actually out of town, and I'll talk a little bit about that at the end of this episode. But that's all going to be after the Weird Wednesday report. That's going to be after the amazing conversation with Byron Craft. That's all happening right after this. Seven young people shipwrecked on a mysterious island. The island was deserted. Not even birds or animals dared to come here. What did they find? Seaweed, fish, and turtle eggs. Anything we can eat, as well as snakes and lizards. Just let me finish. There's a lot of grass growing around here. You can eat the roots. You can eat the roots of a lot of plants here. Never thought of that, did you? They were driven to the edge of starvation. Food was scarce, and they were forbidden to eat the mushrooms that grew on the island. Fear and hunger turned them against each other. I'll kill you. But Tango will help me live. I haven't been hungry since I left the ship. Maybe. Oh, help me. Help me. 
please. Can't we eat the mushrooms now? That would really be the end of us. Akiko! monster. Can they escape the dreaded Matongo? You'll find out when you see Matongo! If somebody asked you to describe a movie to them, what would you say? Would you say that Guardians of the Galaxy is Star Wars meets the A-Team, or that Jurassic Park is Westworld meets the Lost World? The X meets Y pitch is a long-standing Hollywood tradition, one that's been used to sell plenty of movies that otherwise probably wouldn't have been made. But, instead of starting with a script and comparing it to two movie titles for an X meets Y pitch, what if we started with two movie titles and improvised the pitch? Well, on my podcast X meets Y, that's exactly what we do. I'm Jonathan Inbody, and each episode I and a guest will randomly select two movie titles, and then we have half an hour to come up with a new original movie idea that could be described as movie X meets movie Y. We've done episodes like Ocean's Eleven meets 2001 A Space Odyssey, Godzilla meets Old Yeller, and Robocop meets Dead Poet Society. Basically, it's a half-hour sprint through a brainstorming session, and it is a lot of fun. If any of that sounds even the slightest bit fun to you, then you should give X Meets Y a listen. It's available wherever you find your podcasts, or at xmeetsy.libsyn.com. Hopefully, you'll hear my voice again very soon, but for now, enjoy the rest of your regularly scheduled podcast, you lucky so-and-so. Maggie, look! Nothing can destroy it. It's coming for you from space to wipe all living things from the face of the Earth. Beware of the creeping unknown. This woman is about to learn a terrible secret. She will never be the same again. Because this man knows that same secret, he will never speak again.
Garrett, now the Monster Kids. This is Jeff Bolinger calling with another Weird Wednesday report. Uh, I'm sorry I'm calling so late in the week, Derek, but uh, today is the first day I've really had a voice in over a week due to uh, bronchitis and asthma issues. And in fact, I didn't actually go to Weird Wednesday last week because I was too sick to leave the house. But I watched the movie at home instead. And the movie was The Hideous Sun Demon. And it was kind of a reverse world kind of thing where the guy becomes a monster during the daytime instead of at night. And the thing that most occurred to me when watching this movie was, this guy was kind of a monster when he was in human form, too. I mean, you know, he wasn't out murdering people or anything like that, but he was kind of a creep, you know? So I didn't have a lot of sympathy for him uh, when he becomes a monster. You know, I felt sorry for his victims, but not for him so much. And, you know, it was an old, mid-20th century monster movie. There was, you know, a lot of pseudoscience to explain what was happening. But, like I said, mostly cared about the people around him, not about the main character himself. Uh, as far as tonight's Weird Wednesday movie, uh, it's Monster Roulette, which means uh, Jeff hasn't picked. Uh, Jeff, the, the owner of Joy Cinema, that is, uh, hasn't picked what the movie's going to be yet. I don't think I'm going to make it, but... I'll find out what played and watch it at home again, because uh, I'm just I'm not up to going out yet. But I hope you're doing great, I hope Brent is doing great, and I hope our Monster Kid friends are doing great. I'll talk to you again real soon. A man who loved with fierce, demanding passion. who ran wild in a reign of terror that spread murder in his trail. The thing that went wrong in the secret atomic laboratory afflicted him with the most hideous curse ever visited on man, forcing him to cower in the darkness like a hunted animal. For one touch of the sun's bright rays transformed him into the reptilian Jekyll and Hyde monstrosity who couldn't control his lust to kill. If you're friends with Jeff on Facebook, you'll see that he's been talking online about how sick he's been and he had to go to the hospital. He's fine now. I mean, he's still recovering, I mean, he's, but he's out of the woods. I mean, I, we're, man, I'm painting this to be a lot more dire than it is. It's really not. I mean... I mean, it's, it's, you know what, Jeff, I'm glad you're feeling a little better and I hope you continue to feel better. Let's just say that as for the movie, the hideous sun demon, I've actually been kind of obsessing about this movie now for months. I'm not sure why I've seen the movie. I like the movie quite a bit. I love the monster design. I love the reverse like canthropy thing going on, but I think I'm also obsessed with the movie because of the way it was shot. It was shot over 12 consecutive weekends. It was only budgeted for $10,000. They went over budget to 50,000, but still there's just something about this independent monster movie that just draws me to it. And I think it's because it's an independent film. It's a low budget movie. And that's, what's got my attention when it comes to these films. Robert Clark also is somebody that I really like as an actor and that he directed this movie, or at least co-directed it is pretty phenomenal. I love this movie. I was not able to go to weird Wednesday when it played. I'm kind of disappointed that I didn't because I'm sure it would have been fun to see with a crowd. But then again, 
I do have it here on DVD. There have been two releases of this movie dubbed differently. The Hideous Sun Demon Special Edition and What's Up Hideous Sun Demon kind of dubbed uh, with, with new dialogue to make it kind of funny. The What's Up Hideous Sun Demon is kind of a takeoff on the What's Up Tiger Lily, which was a Woody Allen thing where he redubbed some movie. Also, supposedly, and I wasn't aware of this until I just looked this up on, you know, the Oracle of All Knowledge on the Internet, Wikipedia, Donald Glut made a short film sequel I guess you could consider it a fan film or a monster kid film. It's not authorized, of course, but Wrath of the Sun Demon. If anybody's got any leads on Wrath of the Sun Demon, I would love to see it. Just saying. Jeff, again, thanks for calling that in, man. I hope you continue to get better. It has been written since the beginning of time that evil supernatural creatures exist in a world of darkness. And it is also said, man can call forth these powers of darkness, the demons of hell. It is the night of the demon. And tonight is the night that Dana Andrews as a daring scientist, defies the mysterious murderous devil cult in a desperate battle against the demons of hell. Oh, why did you drop the poker? Red hot. Which isn't, you know. Oh, my boy, you're as pale as death. There was something in here. He has been chosen. I've been chosen for what? What do you mean? Today I found all the pages of my desk calendar torn out after October the 22nd. I know why. He died on the 22nd. John, what's the matter? The same thing happened to my desk calendar after the 28th. The frightened girl. The master of witchcraft. You will die, as I said, at 10 o'clock on the 28th of this month. Your time allowed is just three days from now. Skeptical? Don't make up your mind till you see this masterpiece of macabre magic. Because, after all, evil supernatural creatures really do exist. Film productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplace is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First, Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Hammer? Wasn't that an 80s cop show on ABC with David Raish? This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 
1951 Down Place can be found in iTunes or their website, www.1951downplace.com. Wait, that was Sledgehammer. 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. It is safe to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this dinner will not be born on Earth. come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead, zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the earth. Plan 9 from outer space. Starring the most frightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive vampira, and Thor Johnson as the walking dead. Turn off your electrode gun! No! No! Stop him, Dennis! I can't get it! It's jammed! Stop him, you fool! Bullets bounce off their bodies. Rockets, missiles, jets cannot stop their death ships. What earthly power can stop this terror? For a glimpse of things to come, see this blast of screen suspense. For it could be happening right now. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I'd like to welcome to the show an author that I finally met in person for the first time at the Lovecraft Film Festival last year. I say for the first time, though, because I've actually been aware of this guy for a little while because his books are on my Kindle, and I've really enjoyed reading what he does. Byron Kraft, welcome to Monster Kid Radio, sir. Well, thank you, Derek. Thanks for having me on uh, Monster Kid Radio. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the nice plug. I Everybody loves a good crass uh, commercial announcement. <laughs> when we were speaking last night to test our connection, we're like, can we plug my books? Of course we can plug your books. We've got to plug your books. I, I love your books, man. Well, sh- don't tell people I said that. See, gee whiz, you're giving me away now. <laughs> well, thank you. Nah, every time I have somebody on the show, I want to I want to promote them and support them. And I mean, uh, it was an honor to meet you and chat with you a little bit last year at the festival and I want to tell people about what you're doing. The Cry of Cthulhu is how I first discovered you, and it's just a phenomenal read. Well, thank you. Uh, to your listeners there, how we met, we were at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu Con uh, That's right. in uh, Portland, Oregon. And we met, and actually we met through a friend of ours who is a, a good friend of mine, a 
another author by the name of Sean Hode, another Lovecraftian author. And I don't know how it happened, uh, Derek, but you and I started talking about old sci-fi movies and our particular favorites, I guess we found out in our conversation was the, you know, the fifties and the sixties. And we talked about everything from Quatermass to, uh, invaders from Mars. And then all of a sudden we touched on Japanese films and we had just so much in common and it was fun. And I think that from then on, we've had kind of a continuing uh, relationship on it. The the book that you had mentioned, The Cry of Cthulhu was my first novel that I published. It's been on the market now for a little over four years. And uh, all of my books are available through uh, Amazon as either paperback or Kindles. Uh, Another one of my novels is Shoggoth. And if you're really a big fan of kind of the, the 50s, 60s sci-fi or Quatermass and that type of thing, that book, even though it takes place modern day, it's about a network of tunnels beneath the Mojave Desert where there is a, an experimental military base where they ex- have experimental weapons. And a group of scientists in the military soon discover that these tunnels are millions of years old. And there's something still alive down there. So there's a good plug for you. And then there's my Arkham Detective series, which takes place around 1933, about a hard-boiled police detective that investigates things that go bump in the night. Okay, so much for my crass commercial announcement. I think what you wanted to talk about (laughs) today was a film that, and this was part of our conversation, and this is how this all came about, ladies and gentlemen. One of my favorite films, in fact, it's my childhood favorite, and it's still one of my favorites as an adult, is the Japanese sci-fi film, The Mysterians. And I had mentioned it to Derek, and he got real excited. He says, oh, yeah, I've heard of it. I've just never seen it. Well, I happen to have a copy of that, plus a few other good Japanese sci-fi classics on DVD, and I sent them to Derek. So uh, that's kind of been the motivation for this this, uh, radio show today. I always love talking about classic monsters, science fiction, that sort of thing with people. Anywhere I go, whether it's the Lovecraft Film Festival in Cthulhu Con or like a Wizard World or something like that, anytime I, I go there to something like this, if I can find somebody to talk about classic monsters or classic sci-fi with, I consider it a win. So meeting you and chatting with you at last year's Lovecraft Film Fest was was a win because I got to talk to somebody whose books I've enjoyed and Obviously, it has some very similar interests. But before we talk about the Mysterians, there's a game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio that gives our listeners a chance to learn a little bit more about our guests. I call it the Classic Five. I've got a deck of cards here, and each card has a this or that, yes or no style question on them. They're all about classic monster movies. There are no wrong answers. Are you ready to play the Classic Five, Byron? So there are only yes or no answers. Is that correct? Well, yes or no, this or that style questions. Which movie do you prefer? This or that? That sort of thing. Not not, not too hard, but, you know, I'd call it a conversation starter. All right. Have at it. Okay. Here we go. Which movie do you prefer? King Kong or Godzilla? King Kong. Well, I but I have to segue. If you're talking about the American release Godzilla, then it's King Kong. If you're talking about the Japanese release of the movie Gojira, Oh, that's a difficult one to answer. I probably would go for Gojira because there's no similarity between the two films. They are very different, and watching them back-to-back is a really unique experience, which which I think the last time I watched them is, is how I did it, just back-to-back, just to kind of see what the differences were. And it's it's fascinating that 
what they did in the American version to kind of make it its own thing. But Gojira is such a more powerful film and story. And, and, and they, I don't know what they did in the States. Even if, I don't even know if they had a black and white negative of that film when it came to the United States. Because if every copy of the original American release, Godzilla, where they cut out 30 minutes of the Japanese film and spliced in 30 minutes of uh, Raymond Burr, all of them look like terrible dupes or duplicates, but dupe is the term that most film people used back then. It has a very washed out gray appearance to it. If you see Gojira, the blacks are rich, the whites and the grays are rich, and it has a very film noir presence to it. Oh yeah. And the story, and the story is, story is so much better. You know, it's, it's just, it's a much better story, but I'm sorry. I digress. And I was supposed to give you a, Either, 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 or yes or no answer. No, th- this is exactly what the game's about. So this is awesome for me. All right, card number two, question number two. What is your favorite big bug monster movie? Them. I tell you, gentlemen, science has agreed that unless something is done and done quickly, man as the dominant species of life on Earth would be extinct within a year. Stay in your homes, I repeat. Stay in your homes. Your personal safety, the safety of the entire city, depends upon your full cooperation with the military authorities. Yes, cities, nations, even civilization itself, threatened with annihilation because in one moment of history-making violence, nature, mad, rampant, wrought its most awesome creation. For born in that swirling inferno of radioactive dust, were things so horrible, so terrifying, so hideous. There is no word to describe them. Ah, okay. The giant ants. The scene with the little girl that they got from the trailer where the parents were killed by the giant ants, and she's in a catatonic state, and they wave a little vial of uh, formic acid underneath her nose like smelling salts. And then she starts screaming, them, them. It just sends chills through you, you know. And what's the, you know, there's an interesting piece of trivia about that film. Here I am, I'm segueing again. If you remember, there's a sequence in it with Fess Parker. And for all you people out there that were born after 1960, Fess Parker was famous for playing Davy Crockett. That catapulted him to stardom. He had a very bit part in it because he was just a bit actor in those days. And I believe the character was an airplane pilot that saw the flying ants and they put him in a sanitarium because they didn't want him to spread this around or cause any panic. Well, it turned out the night the movie was released, Walt Disney went to see the film then <laughs> and was so taken by Fess Parker's performance, he got the job at Davy Crockett. Nice. I'm sorry, I can do I can I can go on like this all day, all right. <laughs> hey no man, that's that's fine by me. That's fine by me. All right, question number three. Who else could have or should have played a mad scientist? 
Oh, my goodness. Well, of course, obviously, we've seen Vincent Price in that role. Who else could have? I just, I think any of the great fests, I mean, everybody from anybody from Orson Welles to Richard Burton, I think they all would have been great in those parts uh, as the mad scientists. I don't know if I answered that one. Orson Welles. No, no. Orson Welles is a mad scientist, man. I, my, my, uh, the hair on my arms are all like, ooh, because, man, that would be amazing. <laughs> it would be. <laughs> <laughs> to see oh wow yeah Lu- lucas was going to originally use him for the voice of darth vader and then decided against it at the last minute because he felt his voice would be too recognizable oh man just hmm. what could have been yes sir well yeah what you know what could have been here's a could have been for you yeah they it was a project in england that they never got off the ground they were going to remake quater missing the pit also known as five million years to earth and they were going to have sean connery play Quatermus. Oh, wow. And they, they could never get the budget, the backing for it. That would have been an awesome film, but go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that, wow. Huh. You, can you imagine that? You know, because we all, a lot of us remember Connery now from, you know, the Indiana Jones's movies as Indiana's father. Right, right. Or James. And Bond. you look yeah. at him and wow. go, oh my God, right there. He's the perfect Quater, you know, per- perfect Bernard Quater. Oh, wow. You know? Uh, one of my, Anyways, no, one of my frequent guests and, and my co-host on my hammer films podcast, uh, Scott Morris is a huge James Bond fan and loves Quatermass as well. So I'm just wondering what he's going to say when he hears this, cause that would be amazing. That would be cool. Wouldn't it? It would be great. Yes. All right. Question number four, which movie do you prefer the amazing colossal man or attack of the 50 foot woman? Amazing colossal man. They're both absurd films, but <laughs> the attack of the 50-foot woman is so ridiculously absurd, especially when the guy comes to visit her and she's in the hospital bed and there's the plaster of Paris hand hanging there. I mean, it was... Uh, yeah. When we were kids and saw that at the theater, we laughed so bad. Well, even in The Amazing Colossal Man, there were times you could see through them, you know, where they were superimposed. Right. But Attack of the Fifth, it was just, there was a bit of a morality story in The Amazing Colossal Man. But, you know, the Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, I mean, that was just a cheesy exploitation film. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry if I hurt the feelings of any of your listeners right hey, man, now. There are no, totally no wrong answers. It's all good. All right. Final card, final question. What classic monster movie that never had a sequel should have had one? Hmm. I'm going to say Curse of the Demon, or also known as Night of the Demon. Oh, wow. You can tell that I really like British horror sci-fi. Wow. What would have been your answer, Derek? Oh, boy. I um, you know, I always kind of play along with this when I do this with the guests. Uh, oh, man, because I, I would love more Quatermass in the world, maybe another Quatermass film. Yeah, but you said there weren't any sequels, so there's a, there have been uh, uh, good point. Quatermass. Good point. Oh, man. Yeah. You know... Uh, I was just talking with about uh, this movie with a couple of friends the other day, and because you got me thinking British horror and and all, I'm going to say maybe another Captain Kronos film would have been great. Oh, that's a good point. I would yeah. love to see more. Well, of that. I'm I'm a big fan of uh, of Nigel Neal. If if you know who Nigel mm-hmm. Neal was, he is the creator of Quatermass. He made the film Creature, which in the United States was released as Abominable Snowman. He was just a great writer. He did not only the Quatermass, oh, what did they call them? Um, well, they were like miniseries. I forget the term they use now in England. There were uh, six half-hour chapters each story. Right. And right. Uh, he did those originally, and then he did the first three films. 
Uh, I'm a big fan of his. Uh, There is a book out uh, that is on his biography, which is a fascinating read, too, on Nigel Neal. I don't know as much about him as I feel like I should, but I I do know how important he is to British science fiction, uh, Hammer films because of what he did with Quatermass and that sort of thing. And and just, wow, I I need to learn more about the guy. (laughs) A lot of people don't know is the Brits were actually ahead of us uh, when it came to television. Yeah. And they had television in the 1930s in England, and they actually had a very crude form of videotape. Uh, and when the, the war broke out, uh, and at those days it was just BBC One, I think it was probably just called BBC in those days, they shut down BBC television because it had such a strong signal being broadcast that they were afraid that the Germans... Uh, bombers would be able to home in on it and use it for their targeting. So they shut the radio station, I mean, excuse me, the TV station down. Oh, wow. They later reopened it after the war. Nigel Neal was in there and uh, just a young kid, and he he started out as like a mailboy, copy boy or something like that, uh, running around doing errands. So when they finally did uh, the first Quatermass, which would have been, it was just called the Quatermass Experiment, uh oh teleplay is what they call it six chapter teleplay is the term that they use okay they recorded it on this very crude videotape and they had a somewhat deal with canada that the canadians were going to take the tape and show it over there and they sent them the first two chapters and the quality of the tape was so bad that the canadians rejected the project and Fast forward to somewhere around the early to mid-60s, the BBC was cleaning out their warehouse and they threw away the only original videotape print of the first chapter teleplay. And so to this day, only those two chapters of the Quatermass Experiment teleplay exist. Obviously, they reshot it was a movie with Brian Dunleavy, but the uh, teleplay, that's all that exists. But the interesting thing is we were using kinescope. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't start using videotape to, gosh, I'm not sure when it was, probably early 60s, I would imagine, something like that. Late 50s, early 60s, we were using kinescope. So mm-hmm. anyways, go ahead. It's a part of the world that generated some incredible science fiction and horror and genre material. Uh, like I said, I, I co-produce a Hammer Films podcast with Scott Morris. I love the Hammer Films and, and his involvement and his influence there. Without him, I don't think we would have had such a strong British sci-fi output at that time. And it's just amazing stuff. And that's the last card. So how how do you feel after playing the classic five, sir? Uh, Totally intimidated, Derek, totally intimidated, (laughs) but I can ask you a question. Why? some of those were so good. Okay. 50s and and early sixties. And that was because during that period, I mean, you still had, whether you call it the Hollywood elite or the uh, Elysium in England, the elite there that made the films, they looked down as horror and science fiction as lowbrow. Mm -hmm. They still, you know, knew that there was a market there for it, but there was very little money that was opted for those kind of films. So when you have a budget where you barely have two nickels to rub together, the next thing you need to do is come up with a darn good story. Yeah. You know, now we, we still cranked out in America things like Teenagers from Outer Space and Plan 9 from Outer Space and films like that or Tack the 50-Foot Women. But we also had tremendous movies, you know, like It Came from Outer Space, which is one of my all-time favorites, and War of the Worlds and all of those. So, 
but that was basically it. It just, you couldn't, there wasn't a bunch of money for special effects and actually special effects were a lot more difficult to do in those days. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And in fact, I, I, I'm about CGI to death myself nowadays, <laughs> you know, but anyway, so where would you like to go, sir? What, what can I do for you? <laughs> well, we got through the classic five. We've talked about your books. Let's talk about the movie. Let's talk about the Mysterians. The Mysterians! The Mysterians! The Mysterians! You are now inside a flying saucer. Our destination, the planet Earth. We are the Mysterians. Our race is old, dying, our planet dead. Only you of Earth, you and your women, can give us life. And what we want, we take. The Mysterians, the greatest science fiction picture man's imagination ever conceived. The Mysterians, swooping down from outer space, blowing up from the lower depths. The Mysterians, creatures who knew the uttermost secrets of the atom before our planet was born. Love-hungry spacemen come to seize our women that their dying race may live. It started in the east, soon it swept the west. The all-out horror of interplanetary war. See giant robots, no earthly weapon can destroy, rip a path of destruction across the land. See the forces of nature harnessed to the invader's will, wipe entire cities from the face of the world. See the earth itself crumble beneath your feet. The Mysterians, threatening our civilization with weapons beyond the belief of modern science. Flying ray guns that blast everything before them. An impregnable fortress that hides in the earth. Gamma rays that melt the heaviest armament. As men and machines disintegrate before Mysterians. you. What power can stop their ruthless advance? See the blazing holocaust of an earth gone mad. See on the giant screen in flaming color. The Mysterians. You had a chance to see this when it first opened, when it first came out here in the States. That's amazing. I would love to see some of these movies during their first run. Oh, yeah. I've seen things like I saw the Creed from the Black Lagoon and Black and White 3D. You know, my parents and all my aunts and all my uncles, they were all in World War II. And so they were kind of, as they used to call in those days, the cocktail set. So they would take my brother and I and drop us off for double or triple features at a, on a Saturday afternoon to get rid of us. And they'd all go party, you know, which was pretty standard in those days, you know. I actually got to see War of the Worlds and Day of Still as a double bill one time. Oh, man. And I was a kid when I, when I saw Day of the Earth Still, Gort the robot scared the crap out of me. I got to tell you. So, <laughs> But the Mysterians is interesting, and here is where I'm going to date myself, but it actually had three release dates. Okay. Which I thought was an interesting piece of trivia. It was originally released in Japan in 1957. Mm-hmm. And then when they released it, they called it the must. Well, they didn't have the word the in front of us, Mysterians. And they were surprised when it got translated, dubbed, and American credits put on it for, for American distribution that their word Mysterians and our word Mysterians were so similar. That was an interesting piece of trivia. But, anyways, I'm segueing. So, anyways, it was released in 57 in Japan, and it was released. It had a premiere, pardon me, in California in October of 1958 at a theater. I'm sorry, the name escapes me, but it would have been cool to be there because they had a life-size gigantic cardboard alien, the alien robot, which became known in the film as uh, Mogera, mm-hmm. I believe it, or Mogura, who's the, was the robot, and that was outside the front of it. And that was a, a joint collaboration unusually between Warner Brothers and RKO. 
And that was in October of 58. Along comes MGM and they cut a deal and they took over what would be the first national run of the film in 1959. And they double billed it all over the country with the British made sci-fi movie, First Man in Space. So I actually saw those two movies together in 1959. By the way, I think First Man in Space, it's a very low budget, but darn good story. You know, I, have you ever seen it with Marshall Thompson? I have seen it, and it is so different <laughs> than this one. I'm trying to imagine seeing those back to back, but it's a great film. It's a really good movie. Yeah, it is. It's, I mean, it's, it's a good monster to rubber suit film. And actually, the monster costume is cool, and uh, especially in 59 as a kid, it was a pretty scary monster, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and uh, interesting. So that was, you know, the release of it. I, you know, and I, and I mentioned earlier that, you know, Mysterians, it is probably my childhood favorite, and it still, in my opinion, holds up at the, as an adult. It's probably one of the most intriguing of all of the uh, Toho production sci-fi films. I think it's probably the most important one of the Japanese sci-fi classic films of that period. But unfortunately, it's also the most forgotten. You know, I feel like a lot of the uh, Japanese genre film gets overshadowed by the kaiju movies. And, and I love the kaiju films. I love Rodan. I love Gojira. You know, I love all that stuff. But I feel like they cast a very big shadow over some of the more interesting genre films. I just got done talking about the H-Man with some people not too long ago. And, you know, that's another one that came from Toho from this period of time. That's just fascinating and really good. But again, it doesn't have a giant monster in it per se. So people don't really think about it as much. This one's at least got Mogera, but still it doesn't get talked about as much. Yeah. I sent you a copy of H-Man as well. And I have to admit, I saw that at the theaters when it was released. Oh, that's a really good movie. And it is. The creature, if you want to call it the nuclear-type creature, a little bit like a Shoggoth in some respects. And it has a little bit of a Lovecraftian flavor. And it was kind of neat that they they mixed it in with almost a film noir detective Raymond Chandler-type Japanese version of a Raymond Chandler story with this, with this horror story about... You know, grandma's old fashioned jelly going around nuking everybody. (laughs) Really good stuff, though. And and but you did mention something that's very interesting because the director of Mysterians, who had also you know quite a resume in his life of films that he made, was Ashiro Honda. Mm -hmm. He opposed that silliness that was in the '60s in the seventies of the, uh, you know, the Godzilla movies and that type of thing in his mind, he thought that the Godzilla and the themes of those movies should have had more of a global reach rather than reaching out for the younger Japanese set, which that's how they kind of eventually morphed into over time. Right. Yeah. In, in, I mean, if you look at, you know, Ashiro Honda's, uh, work that he did. I mean, he uh, he did Gojira or Godzilla. He did, of course, uh, Battle in Outer Space, which we'll get into in a minute, which was kind of sort of a sequel to the Mysterians. Mothra, mm-hmm. uh, Tango, Rodan. Saw Rodan when it was released. Destroy all monsters. Now you're starting to get into the silliness. You know, in those days, you had to do what the studio told you to do. 
And so he did make some of these films. And even though he, you know, he kind of rejected it, he kind of did not like the way they were humanizing the monsters and that type of thing. But he went along and did what the studio higher ups told him to do. Yeah. I mean, you, you gotta, you know, do your job, but you know, that said, I, I agree. I, I like destroy all monsters and I like, you know, Godzilla versus a sea monster and all that. I like those. I love King Kong escapes. It's one of my favorite movies, but when you want a really, um, a movie that kind of transcends that and, and has some really deep themes and it's, it's just a more serious, solid film. You look at Gojira, you look at the H-Men, you look at this, it's different. It's got a different flavor than say the stuff that came out in the seventies. And I, I totally see what you're saying. And I can see where he'd be coming from too. Well, you know, actually there was a very subtle scene in Rodan early on in the picture, which was my favorite. And, uh, and I, you may have seen it more currently than I have. And I might stand corrected on part of it. The memory fails, but it was either a half a dozen or so uh, military men, Japanese military men, or either they were police officers. They were, holding hand in hand going down this tunnel at about a 30-degree incline mm -hmm. into this deep, dark tunnel. And I believe what they eventually came across was uh, a Rodan hatchling or something like that. But it was a very eerie sequence, you know, going through the tunnel. I've always had a thing about underground and tunnels. And that also in, in the Mysterians, the aliens, the Mysterians, uh, installation is like this big, huge dome this whole network of tunnels underneath the ground in Japan. Mm -hmm. I, I really like that. I just, it had a really nice flavor to it. Maybe it might be nice if I just briefly mention what the movie's about. Yeah, we should uh, probably just... For, by, by the way, this film is, is available. You can buy it on Amazon, normally in a DVD collection, and I, I can't remember now. Derek, I don't know if you have it in front of you. The collection I gave you, was it, uh, was it Mysterians and Battle in Outer Space together? Is that... What, we, what was on that DVD? Uh, I'd have to. I don't have the DVD right in front of me, um, but it was a collection. There were a couple of different movies on there. I know you can buy the movie by itself right now on DVD for like thirty bucks, which you know. Well, the collections are actually cheaper. Yeah, when you can get the collection. And, you know. uh, I was absolutely astounded when I first purchased it that they were such good quality. Yeah, the transfer is really, really good. To see. Yeah. I expected to see, you know, washed out, cheap Pathé color, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, where they used to shoot movies on it on commercial ectochrome, and then they would everything would turn pink over the years. You know, yeah. I expected that. If you can ever find a, a, a mint copy of Hercules with Steve Reeves, I would love to see it because everything I've ever seen, I saw that originally at the theater, and the color screamed out of it to the screen. But whatever stock they shot that movie on, you know, degraded quickly. And unfortunately, there isn't a good, uh, I haven't seen a good copy of it yet. But anyways, the Mysterians, it's, you know, it's about a bunch of aliens that arrive on Earth. And they ask permission for just like a small track of land in Japan for their people to live on. And, of course, they soon discover that they're a bunch of invaders and they're responsible for this giant robot, which is really cool. It's kind of like a metal-made Godzilla creature. Mm -hmm. you know. And, of course, this movie was a few years after Godzilla. Godzilla was in 54, uh, so there's probably about three, four years between the two films. But the, so this giant robot the size of Godzilla uh, starts destroying the city and the Japanese armed forces come out. And they attempt to uh, stop them with every uh, weapon they have available. 
And it's really kind of exciting. I mean, I got good action in it. It's an entertaining addition to, I think, a, a, one of the collection of Space Invader movies ever made. It's well photographed. The music is beautifully scored. Oh, the music is fantastic. Isn't it? I love the music during the battle scenes. That's my favorite. And that has been reused. That music was reused years later in other Japanese films. Sure. But yeah. Akira Fukabe was a composer on that, and he's obviously most well-known and associated with Godzilla but or Gojira, but he did so much for Toho. Just his music is beautiful, beautiful stuff. And then, you know, even the special effects in it, Derek, I thought were decently executed, you know, for the 1950s. Uh, very seldom did you see any wires, mm-hmm. you know. They did use a lot of, uh, you know, I, I think they were, it was like a form of cartoon animation for the rays coming out of the spaceships and the ray guns and the battle dome thing that the uh, military installation for the aliens. But then again, if you look at Forbidden Planet, you know, when they're shooting those, their ray guns, those were animated in by Disney for MGM. Right. And it has, it's a very similar effect to the, like you saw on Forbidden Planet. The miniatures in it, I think, are awesome. One of my favorite things are, though, is that the Japanese self-defense forces, I believe it was called, they gave assistance to the production and allowed them to film a lot of the military equipment and personnel. And uh, the film, by the way, was shot on what's called Toho Scope, <laughs> which was widescreen. <laughs> you like that name, Toho Scope? Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Anyways, Toho Scope was similar to our Cinemascope or Pathé Vision or that type of thing. But very well done. Very well done. But the interesting piece of trivia in the film is when Toho Productions, they were only allowed one hour to film the footage of a Japanese military air transport plane that was unloading, you know, equipment, personnel and that type of thing. So the producers, they shut down production on the film and took every camera that they had available to shoot the operation from different angles, but always being careful never to photograph the number on the plane. So when you saw the film, they cut it all together with all these different angles. It looked like, you know, multiple planes had landed and, you know, there was just uh, this huge convoys and stuff. (laughs) This large military operation was coming out. And in reality, it was just one plane and a handful of guys and a couple of jeeps or something. I love that, though. I, you know, you were we were talking earlier about if you don't have a huge budget, you've got to have a really good story. I've always felt that the lower the budget, the more creative you have to be, and you end up with stuff like this. You have an hour to shoot. Well, let's just shoot as much as we can, but not include the plane number because we're going to make it look like there's there's a ton of planes, but they only had access for an hour to shoot this. I love that. I mean, that's so amazing and creative. And it's one of the things that I love about these movies. Well, like uh, a good example of it, it's been done in so many different ways, like Roger Corman's oh, yeah. Mask of the Red Death. Okay. And in the mass, the, the climax scenes in it, in the Mask of the Red Death, Red Death was the ballroom scene with Hundreds of people in this ballroom, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Well, the Skotak brothers and I had the opportunity to get a print of the film and watch it through a moviola, frame by frame. Oh, wow. Wow. There was only about 20 people on the floor. <laughs> but the way Corman shot it, there was always a large handful or group of people in front of the camera lens 
And, you know, they would have Price walking through the crowd, you know, in his red outfit and everything. And then they would just change the angle and have another group of people. So it looked like he just kept walking through this continuous crowd, you know. That's amazing. It was just like a few frames and all. And it was a, it was a shot, a crane shot of the ballroom. Uh, it, it could have been shot off a balcony, too. I don't know if that was actually a set or a, or a location shot. But it was just briefly we went, oh, my God. There's only 20 people down here. Brilliant, though. It's brilliant filmmaking. I love it. Now, another little piece of trivia, too, is Mogera. That's the giant robot. It's kind of like the metallic Godzilla in the film, which that is a great sequence, by the way. Oh, when he comes out from a, when you first see him, the first reveal, when he comes. Oh, it's so good. Out of the woods. Yeah. And the fire, the for, there's the forest fire. Oh, wow. All that. Yeah. Here's the other thing I liked about him. You know, when, when they started getting into the silliness or they didn't do in this, but when they started to get in the silliness of these gigantic monsters in the uh, Japanese sci-fi movies, and they've even done it with some of these terrible remakes the Americans have done on Godzilla. You're, you're shooting them with 50 caliber machine gun bullets, missiles, rockets, and it doesn't bother the creature, which is just totally unbelievable to me. Okay. This particular thing being metallic, well, yeah, I, you bullets would probably bounce off of it, okay? Mm-hmm. But how do they get rid of it? It's very clever. They trick it into following them and coming across the bridge, and they dynamite the bridge, and the damn thing falls into a valley, and it's destroyed. <laughs> to me, that I like that because it just wasn't this totally invincible thing. Exactly. Now, I probably have to correct me on the pronunciation of this. Fellow that wore the Mogera suit, is it pronounced Harua Nakajima? Did I do that correctly? I think so. I'm not very good at some of the more international names, but I, I think that's how that's pronounced. Okay. Well, he's the one that wore it in the film. Mm-hmm. Toho Productions, they really liked it, and they wanted to preserve the costume. And they started on one of their uh, sound stages. Until around 1974, and then unfortunately the suit was destroyed in a fire, kind of kind of like a pyrotechnical accident that happened while they were filming another movie. So the, unfortunately, Mogura, Mogura has been lost forever. I read that, and man, that's that's so sad. I, I hate to hear when you know an icon or an artifact from some of these movies that we love so much gets destroyed, torn down, lost, or whatever. And I'm just Imagining this warehouse filled with all these monster suits on Toho's sets or on Toho's lot somewhere, and then there's a fire. and And what history are we losing here when something like that happens? It's just disheartening. That happened. Uh, one of my favorite spaceships are, are the are the War Machines in George Pell's War of the Worlds, mm-hmm. and there was only ever three of them made, and they they were made out of copper and 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 so forth and glass. And George Pell took one of them home. And he had a, an addition put onto his house, and he had like a little museum there. The other two, believe it or not, Paramount took him out to the back lot, smashed him up with hammers, and threw him in a dumpster. <sighs> Years later, George Powell's house burnt down. <laughs> and we, oh, man. So there are no more of the Martian war machine. You know, very sad, because that was a Japanese a designer that did that. My good friend Bob Skotak, back in those days, actually got to go meet him. Oh, he had a picture in Cine Fantastic magazine years ago with over at the guy's house, and he had the original model, which was only about maybe six inches long, the prototype for it. And the guy had it sitting on his desk, you know. 
Um, but uh, unfortunately, you know, that's and that's happened a lot. The giant squid from uh, Disney's 20,000 Leagues Beneath the Sea uh, was actually set up as one of the amusement pieces at Disneyland, and that had a fire, and it was destroyed. Yeah. That happens sometimes. Anyways. Now, Mogera would turn up later in some of the other movies they would do down the line, but it wasn't the original suit or the original Mogera, but they would reference him in other uh, movies uh, during the Heisei era. I think one turns up in like Godzilla versus Space Godzilla and things like that, but it's it's not the same. It's oh. not the same. Yeah. I didn't know. I think so. I'd, I'd have to go back and, darn, I have to go back and watch a Godzilla movie. Oh, well. <laughs> Well, I've read several reviews on uh, the Mysterians, and you mm-hmm. know, a lot of the a lot of people, most people have given it very favorable reviews, and a lot of them say, "Well, gee, why didn't they make a sequel to it?" Well, they kind of, sort of did it. The movie Battle in Outer Space was supposed to be a sequel to the Mysterians, but what happened was the cast of the film ended up being unable to reprise the roles. Uh, in it because they were doing another film. So they altered the screenplay and made it as a standalone production. But if you watch it, it's like, wow, it it almost is a sequel to the Mysterians. And that's why, because they altered the screenplay and it was originally supposed to be a sequel to it. It would have been so cool if they could have got the original cast. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now, did this happen around the same time that they did Frankenstein Conquers the World and War of the Gargantuas? Because that's kind of a similar situation there, too, where they're kind of sort of a sequel, but not exactly. Okay, if we've got to look at Japanese dates on that, not American release dates. Oh, that's true. That's true. Japanese date was 57, and Battle in Outer Space was 59. So it was made and made and or released two years after the Mysterious. Okay, and the movies that I just talked about weren't until the 60s, so that, okay. Another little piece of trivia I found interesting, that an actor in Japan who was, in those days, fairly well-known in Japan, and forgive me if I do not pronounce his name correctly, but it would be Yoshio Tuchiya, was offered the lead role in the Mysterians, Mm -hmm. and he turned it down and wanted to play the leader of the Mysterians. Uh, the role eventually went to a fellow by the name of Kenji Sahara, which has appeared in many Japanese films. He he became the lead character in, in the film. But when Yoshida turned it down, playing the lead Mysterian, I mean, he played it with a helmet and a face placed on, so you never saw his face. <laughs> but that's the part he wanted, you know. Hey. You know, who played there, there's a, a scientist character in here, but he also is this, one of the scientist characters in Godzilla or Gojira in Gojira. Godzilla raids again. Oh, the older gentleman. Oh, I am assuming that that would be Fuyuki Murakami. Okay. The fellow that was from Gojira who plays the scientist that sacrifices his life. To save humanity, which, by the way, folks, you do not see in the Raymond Burr version. Nope. <laughs> was Akiko Hirata. Okay. Yes, the elder science. He, he He's also, I'm pretty sure he's in Battle of Outer Space, too. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I do um, like that guy a lot. Well, he's the one that, uh, isn't it in Godzilla where he's standing inside the giant footprint scratching his head? You know? <laughs> <laughs> isn't that it? The, the thing that's that's neat about 
uh, Ashira Honda is with, well, let's go prior to that. Godzilla, Gojira, mm-hmm. Mysterians in Battle in Outer Space is all three of them have subplots. Gojira, it's even more of a sub, even more powerful than a subplot. But that is that there's a morality play in all three of these stories. Right. We have in Mysterians, there's a uh, subplot of a love triangle where the young lady is engaged to a fella and she breaks it off because she falls in love with this other guy and the fella she broke it off with is a scientist and he goes in and sides with the Mysterians during the time when you thought that they were benevolent aliens. And in the end, he sacrifices his life to save humanity. Same thing with the character that uh, Akihito Hirata in Gojira slash Godzilla does the same thing. And in Battle in Outer Space, we have a character, I forget who the actor was that played it, who ends up being mentally taken over by the aliens. And they actually go in that particular film, if you haven't seen it yet, Derek, you're going to enjoy it because they actually go to the moon where the aliens have their base to fight the aliens. And they go with, I think it's two or three rockets. And it's, it's done really well, surprisingly, you know. And the aliens take him over and he's sabotaging the rockets and killing some of his own people. And eventually he gets back control of his own uh, mental faculties and sacrifices his life to save the rest of the crew. I need to see that movie, it sounds like. You're going to love it. You're going to love Battle in Outer Space. It's a very, very good film. It sounds like it's something I'm going to have to have you back on to talk about when I do see it. Well, it'd be great. I'd love it. I'm having a lot of fun. I don't know about you, but, you know, I may be boring your listeners, but I'm having a lot of fun. I may be, I'm having a lot of fun. So <laughs> I love talking about these movies for people your, who I love them. I love your them, postcards. So. You know, I love your postcards here. Like I've got one here that shows Cecil Calloway. I love Cecil Calloway. Well, he, Cecil Calloway is not the star, but one of the main characters in my absolute favorite Harryhausen film, which is Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Oh, it's so good. He plays the professor who unfortunately loses his life. In the bat escape, but oh, you've got one here with the creature from the Black Lagoon, and uh, I think the yeah, one of them here is is this from uh, Frankenstein Conquers the World, or what's this one from? Oh, what you got out here? Oh, it's, it's got Beverly Garland and Bruce Bennett. Oh my goodness! I, I've done so many of those. I don't know which one you're looking at. <laughs> super, super. Right on. Well, as far as the Mysterian goes, yeah, I mean, I just, I was so happy to watch it and I enjoyed it so much. And anytime I watch a movie like this or the H-Man or, or something like that, I, I realize there's so many other movies out there for me to watch. One of the laments that I have sometimes is that, you know, yeah, I'll go see a modern movie. Uh, you know, I just saw something in the theater the other day. But the movies that speak to me are the classics, you know, the, the stuff that was made in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, that sort of thing. Those are the movies that that make me warm inside, that make me smile the most and, and just kind of complete me, you know. And I always kind of lament that they don't make movies like that anymore and release them in the theater. But then I discover something like this, The Mysterian, something that I've never seen before. And I realize there are so many other movies from this era that I haven't seen yet. It's it's just as good. And there are plenty of movies out there for me to discover. And this is one that I was really happy to discover. It's so 
good. I'm going to listen to the soundtrack all day today, I think. You know, it's just a wonderful movie. It's something that I am going to watch again. It is. No, but these are the movies that, that I love, and these are the movies that, that keep me going. And, I mean, I've been doing Monster Kid Radio now for over 350 episodes because there's still movies out there for me to discover and people to have on the oh, show to wow. talk about them. Yeah, I mean, and, and like I said, whenever I run into somebody at a convention or at a film festival that's into this kind of stuff, I mean, they're, they're my best friend for the weekend because they're the ones that I want to talk to the most. <laughs> So I hope you don't mind me hanging around your table so much at the Lovecraft Film Festival wanting to chat with you about the stuff. <laughs> oh, no, I think it's great. What I will do is uh, I will try to get you a list of some films that I, I think nowadays are, well, they are obscure, but good. There's a film that I haven't seen in probably 50 years. Oh, wow. And it's called The 27th Day. And it's actually based on a... Uh, sci-fi novella by the same name. Gene Barry is in it. I don't recall if he has a starring role or major role in it, but it's a, it's an interesting film. And uh, I, that's one that is on my list, you know, to get a hold of. But I'll try to put together a list for you in the future of some of the ones that I, I think uh, I haven't seen in a while, you know, uh, that uh, are on my list of things to see again, or ones that, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to find. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was a kid. I remember I watched a special on TV about these kids, uh, brother and sister. They build a snowman, and the little girl's got a golden locket to set the shape of a heart. And she puts the heart into the chest of the snowman, and it comes alive. And that's all I remembered. And I remember in the end of it, it sits by the fireplace and melts away. And that's all I remembered is seeing it as a child. So one day I Googled a snowman with a locket for a heart and it came up on um, YouTube. Turned out the film was lost and discovered someplace in 2012. And it was Edmund Gwynn that played the snowman. And the father was played by George Reeves. Oh, wow. Prior, before he ever became Superman. And this obscure little film, you know, and how this uh, snowman, you know, brings joy into the life of these two children where they've got a strict overbearing father. And it was, it's a, it was a cute little film made for television, you know. Do you remember the name of it, what the name of it was? I will be happy to find it and send a link to you. <laughs> Sounds good. Because I forget. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Derek, it's been a lot of fun. This is awesome. Before we wrap up, I want to let people know people can find out everything they need to know about you over at ByronCraftBooks.com, where you've posted everything about the books that you've got out there right now, some writing tips, which are pretty cool. Uh, Looks like you might even have a listing of where you might be showing up convention-wise. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to this. And again, the books are available on Amazon, uh, both as a Kindle and a dead tree version. I highly recommend them. The Arkham Detective stuff. You give me a good Monster Hunter detective story and throw in some monsters that I love, like the Lovecraftian mythos. Man, I'm right there. And these books are so much fun and very enjoyable. Well, thank you. And I'm not just saying that because Byron can hear me right now. (laughs) Well, uh, I will be at FanX in uh, Salt Lake okay. in September. Uh, I will be there along with uh, Sean Hode. The easiest way to find me, instead of going to my web address, is 
Byron is spelled B-Y-R-O-N, and then Craft is just like Arts and Crafts, C-R-A-F-T. Just search my name into the window at Amazon, mm-hmm. and all of my books will come up there. That's a good place to find me. In about 60 days, uh, my sequel to Shoggoth is coming out. Oh, wow. And it's called Shoggoth 2, Rise of the Elders. Okay. And then after that, we will be doing uh, uh, an entire series of audiobooks. Audiobooks of the existing work you've already got out there? Just- yes, uh, and it's been something that uh, I've had so much demand for. And, you know, because nowadays digital downloads are so huge. I, it's something like 97%, 98% of audiobooks are sold as digital downloads. Very mm-hmm. seldom... You know, if, if I go to a show, I might have some on CD for people, but it would be very few. That's the big thing. You know, and people can, on their smartphones, MP3 players, plug them into their cars or going along and listen to them now, nowadays. So that, that's become a big thing. And I've had a lot of people, that have, especially when I go to the conventions, or the, the people have been asking me a lot about it. So I figure it's about time. Well, that's amazing. Keep me posted on that because I'll definitely make sure our listeners know about that when that uh, becomes available. And of course, keep me up to date on your new books and everything because I want to read them. Well, super. Hey, thank you. I'm becoming one of your biggest fans and vice versa here. (laughs) Awesome. Byron, thanks again for taking the time to do this. Really appreciate it. Uh, And have a good rest of your day. Thank you, Derek, for having me on Monster Kid Radio. I really had a lot of fun. So I mentioned it during the conversation, byroncraftbooks.com. It's his online presence. He's got a blog there. There's a list of all his books there. But go to Amazon and look up Byron Craft. Again, it's B-Y-R-O-N. And then Craft, like he said, Arts and Crafts. Look up Byron Craft and you're going to see all his books there. So many of them are available for Kindle as well. So if you're an ebook reader, there you go. He does try to do a number of shows and conventions. So if you do bump into him, let him know that you heard about him here on Monster Kid Radio. Check out his books. He's a good guy. Byron, thank you again for appearing on Monster Kid Radio. We'll have you on again here soon. He saw them capture innocent people only to destroy. turned against sun. People changed into strange, weird animals. A general of the army becomes a saboteur. Trusted police turned into arsonists. The boy's parents changed into killers. Invaders from Mars, weird, fantastic beings of a superintelligence, ruling a race of synthetic humans and pitting them against mankind's dream to conquer the universe. Come on, step on it. Search every tunnel. we got to find Ronaldo and the kid. When the colonel gives a signal, get back here on the double. Well, Cindy, this is the last box. Supermates has now officially moved into Fire & Water Podcast Headquarters. Where do you want this Starman short box? Put it over by the classic monster DVDs. Be careful. Don't crush my superpowers Batmobile. 
calm down, Christopher. Hey, you put the Star Trek DVDs on top of my comic action Wonder Woman Invisible Plane. Oh, jeez. Well, uh, now we can tell everyone that Supermates can be found exclusively at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, if they subscribe via iTunes, they shouldn't notice a change, right? Right. Or if they listen through the main Fire and Water Network feed, no change. They can just find the show's home, show notes, etc. here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Well, I'm going to go take a dip in the Aquaman-sized swimming pool Rob has, but I am not putting on that mirror costume. It smells fishy. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. Hey, hey, don't trip over that life-size shag standy. thing is disturbingly real. Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, now a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find us on iTunes or at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Introducing Archivos, the story mapping and development tool for today's storytellers. With Archivos, storytellers don't just document the characters, places, and events of their stories. They define the relationships between those story elements, and then visualize those connections through unique story mapping interfaces like the living map, the timeline, and the story web. By giving storytellers the ability to see and interact with that network of story elements, Archivos helps ensure story comprehension and continuity, while providing a dramatic and engaging way for fans to explore the story worlds they love. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos, your stories illuminated. In just a few moments, these five, American newspaper man, English bathing beauty, German scientist, Russian soldier, Chinese peasant girl, will be given the power to destroy every human being on earth. What will they do? What will their governments force them to do? What would you do? Each of the capsules has a diameter of lethal radiation, which is exactly 3,000 miles. There is then, in the combined capsules, more than enough power to wipe out all human life on your planet. People of Earth, I am an alien from outer space. Don't say anything. I thought you'd never make it. How long are we going to stay here just hiding like hunted animals? You don't think I like hiding, do you? We've been here ten days. We've managed to disagree on every one of them. Actually, we've had all the disadvantages of marriage without any of the advantages. Jonathan, But it's true. It's time I went to bed. Demand is hereby made for the immediate withdrawal of all American forces and civilians on land, sea, and air to within the limits of continental United States on pain of total war. Every human being alive will die unless science solves the riddle of the destruction capsules from outer space before the 27th day. Answer me, Klaus. Where are they? I've launched them. Soon the world will be ours.
brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you guys and gals for sticking around and listening to the show, even though my lovely wife, Brenda, is not here to wrap up the show with the feedback or even to do the uh, collectibles segment that Michael Dodd always sends in. Here's the thing about Brenda. She's been out of town since last week. Uh, We mentioned this briefly to a few people, and I did talk to Brenda about this. She's okay with people knowing. So basically what happened was her family is all up in Alaska, And her grandmother on her mother's side suffered a massive stroke. And we found out about it Thursday night. She flew up there uh, Friday. Actually, technically, I guess it was Saturday because I had to drive her to the airport at 2 a.m. that morning. So we flew her up there and uh, had to scramble a little bit to make it happen. Got her up to Alaska and... Just wanted to have her there with her sister who also flew in. She's also in Alaska, just a different city, as well as her family and everything, her uncle and cousins and all that. Uh, Her grandmother, as of this recording, is okay. Uh, She's still in the hospital. She's made some progress. Her life's never going to be the same. I think we all kind of accept that, and I think the grandmother even accepts that as well. But at this point... um, She's not completely out of the woods. And like I said, she's still in the hospital. She is eating. She is drinking. She's getting a lot of sleep while her brain kind of rewires itself. But there has been some loss of motor function. That's about all I really know, uh, mostly because I'm not a medical guy. I just know it's bad news. So that's why there's no feedback this week, because I wanted to sit on it until Brenda had a chance to be part of it, especially since you guys and gals are now sending emails and voicemails to us, addressing them to both me and Brenda, which I really appreciate. I love having her incorporated into the show. If you want to send some feedback to the show, well, there's two ways you can do it. You can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can just call and leave a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. I'd love to hear what you have to say about this week's episode, any episode that we've done in the past, anything Monster Kid related. And if you know of a Monster Kid friendly or relevant event coming up, whether it's a convention, a screening, anything like that, Feel free to call it in and let me know. I actually think somebody did write or call something like that in, and then somehow I managed to lose that bit of correspondence. I am so sorry if that's you. If you're listening right now, I, I'm sorry I lost it. Um, please consider sending it in again. I'd like to make that a regular segment here on the show, just Monster Kid events around the well, world, really. I would love to be able to direct people to these things because I know I'm lucky up here in Portland to have access to all these special screenings and things like that. If you follow Chris McMillan's blog over the Shadow Over Portland, check the links in the show notes. You know there's a lot happening in the Pacific Northwest. I'd like to think there's a lot happening all over the place as well. So if there are any events coming up or if you are a monster kid and you're going to be at a convention as a guest or you've got a panel or something, please feel free to send it in to me because I'd love to promote it here on the show. Now, let's do a little bit more housekeeping. I want to let people know what's happened to the regular segment we were doing here on the show, 200 Years of Frankenstein. Well, there's a reason why I haven't done it. Now, I have been doing the research. I have been exploring different Frankenstein media, and I have some really cool stuff in the works. But I've been working with somebody, somebody that you guys and gals know if you've been listening to the show. And uh, we're going to be releasing some Frankenstein-centric media later this year. That's all I'm really able to say at this point because plans are still being made, but stay tuned. If you head over to monsterkidradio.net, that's our main website. That's where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. 
including our contact information, and I've been posting my YouTube videos there as well. Monster Kid Radio is on YouTube with the creatively named YouTube channel, Monster Kid Radio on YouTube. If you go over to YouTube, look up Monster Kid Radio. Got a few videos there now. Please consider liking and subscribing and hitting the little bell for notifications. I have a long way to go before I can start monetizing my YouTube videos, which is something that Google does behind the scenes. I have to have like 4,000 watch hours and a number of, uh, and I think it's 1,000 subscribers. And I think I've got 200. So if you're a YouTube user, please consider hooking a brother up over there. Ha, that buzzing sound. That was my cell phone. Uh, That was Brenda calling. She says hi to everybody. Okay, anyway. So what's coming up next week on Monster Kid Radio? Well, I'm going to keep the Japanese monster movie love coming because there was a new book that came out not too long ago by author John LeMay. John LeMay is the author behind books like the big book of Japanese giant monster movies, the big book of Japanese giant monster movies, The Lost Films, and the new book that just came out last month, Terror of the Lost Tokusatsu Films, from the files of the big book of Japanese giant monster movies. I'm stoked. I love what he's done. I'm a big fan of his giant monster books, and I have really enjoyed Terror of the Lost Tokusatsu films, and I enjoyed chatting with John LeMay. That's happening next week here on the show. And then after that, I have a little thing that we call the rallies, you know, the Monster Rally Retro Awards. Yeah, we're going to announce the ballot for this year's Rally Awards with Stephen D. Sullivan. We're going to be looking at movies from 1934, 1944, and 1954. That'll be coming out here in two weeks, which will be the Thursday that I will be hitting Monster Bash. That's coming up later this month. I am stoked for Monster Bash. Okay, uh, one more thing about the website. If you look at the show notes, you're going to see places where you can actually pick up or buy the DVDs and books that we talk about here on the show for yourself. By doing so, you help support the show. Also, there is a link to our Zazzle shop. Zazzle is a print-on-demand service that we use to print up things like our postcards that Byron talked about at the end of our conversation. In the show notes, there is a bumper sticker that says, I break for monster movies. Well, that goes to our Zazzle store. So just follow that link and you can pick up some Monster Kid Radio postcards or that really cool bumper sticker. We also have a tea public shop for t-shirts. Just plenty of ways for you to support Monster Kid Radio. I thank everything that you do for us. Sharing the tweets, retweeting the likes and broadcasting the link, whatever it is you do. Thank you. This brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Once again, thanks for listening, and thanks to the band Toro Jones. Look him up on Bandcamp or Facebook or follow the link in the show notes and check out their EP, Toro Jones, and especially the song Big Noise from the Jungle because that's what we're playing this week here on Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Big Noise from the Jungle. That belongs to Toro Jones. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 